listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. All right, so when I was a kid, I was afraid of E.T. Some of you guys might think he's cute and cuddly, but he was not cute and cuddly to me. Not at all. I felt vindicated because I was watching it with my kids, and, um, and my oldest daughter was like, Daddy, I'm afraid of that thing. I was like, me too, see? <laughs> I was like, me too. I felt better. I felt like I'm not the only one. Um, we're afraid of stuff when it's the middle of the night. We wake up and we're scared. Steve Breda was telling me like a really freaky story about a stick figure that he would see in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, that bothers me. Um, but but it's true. It's true. Like in the middle of the night, like a, you know, even now as a parent, like you hear the pitter patter of kids' feet, and you're like, oh, they're scared. They're running running to me. And then you think it's sort of cute, and then you realize how supremely uncomfortable you're going to be for, like, the next couple hours as they lay in your bed. But, like, still, it's like this middle-of-the-night stuff. Um, hey, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you, just be honest, be honest, how many of you still get a little bit afraid in the middle of the night? All right. I'm not the only one. That makes me feel better. Uh, I do, too. Like, I'll wake up to get water, to you know, go to the bathroom or whatever, and I want to I wanna move quickly. Like, I want to get back to bed. Like, uh, I'm glad you guys feel that. I, thought, I really thought I might be the only one. I, I want to move quickly. It's scary. Like, like, there's something about, like, is there something lurking? Is, like, it's odd. It's quiet. Uh, so when I was writing this message, I was like, let me do some research on this. So I, I started doing research in the Cleveland Clinic, which is, you know, a pretty reputable hospital here in the United States. They said that there's reason for, like, our middle-of-the-night stuff because it's when our brain is working out issues of anxiety, security, and achievement. Our brains are working those issues out in the middle of the night. That's why we're having crazy dreams. That's why we wake up feeling unsettled. That's, like, that's what's happening to us in the middle of the night. It makes a ton of sense, this middle-of-the-night anxiety or tension that we have. Um, and then, you know, I'm writing the message, so I look in Scripture, and, you know, I do a quick, like, Google middle of the night, and I'm like, boom, like, there is so much life-changing Scripture that happened in the middle of the night, like a ton. Um, Jacob wrestles an angel in the middle of the night in the book of Genesis. By the way, you should bookmark these. Read these later. I started reading them all. They're great stories. Um, anybody hear of a guy named Samson? Middle of the night, Samson destroys or escapes Gaza, and it's like a big victory for Israel. Uh, in the middle of the night, that's when Passover starts. So the 10th plague, the loss of firstborn children, starts in the middle of the night. Um, you know, Jesus speaks the parable of the 10 virgins in the middle of the night. And then like the biggest one, like the you know, the biggest one is Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night, right? You have all these middle-of-the-night, tense, life-changing stories. Um, this pastor, Shane Hips, this is what he says about middle-of-the-night stories in the Bible. He says, middle-of-the-night readings in Scripture, they signify moments of epic transition, transformation, and change. There are moments fraught with promise and peril. They indicate change, and they indicate risk, and they tell us that we are never going to be the same again. That's what they tell us. Middle of the night stories. Here we are in Lent, and if you guys have been with us in Lent, I've said, we've talked a lot about, hey, we're taking time during this season to confront our dark stories. Okay, we're taking time to confront our middle of the night stories, the stuff that bothers us, the stuff that keeps us awake, the stuff that that, that keeps us scared, or whatever it is. That's what we're doing during Lent. And we said, but that's not it. Like, that's not the end of it. Because what we want to do is we want to see how God might be working in us to write new stories of light and new stories of of, um, redemption and new stories of resurrection. And so what I'm realizing, what I'm realizing through this Lenten season is that God does God's best work in the middle of the night. God's doing God's best work in the middle of the night. And the cool thing is that when we go through the book of Ruth, we're getting to this... um, 
Uh, we're getting to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is the climax of the story. Things are either going to get really, really good, or they're going to get really, really bad. They're either going to become really redemptive, or they're going to become really dark. Okay, So we sort of hit this, this climax. And, and the thing that stuck out most to me as I'm reading through Ruth chapter 3 is, once again, we see in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. We see God doing God's best work in the middle of the night. And so, uh, for those of you who haven't been with me for the, uh, for the book of Ruth... Um, Ruth 1, this woman Naomi takes her kids. They go to the, the enemy land of Moab. It's an enemy land. They're, they're, they don't like each other. Um, but her kids marry two women. And then Naomi's husband dies and her two kids die. And so now we're left with widows, three widows. And uh, I told you in week one, widow means, literally translates in the Hebrew to the voiceless and the helpless. Okay, so we have voiceless, helpless women who have three choices. I'm going to die. I'm going to become a prostitute. I'm going to beg. Okay, and so in the, in the book, one of the daughters-in-law says, I'm going to take my chances here in Moab. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, I'm going to go with you, Naomi, back to your land of Israel. Okay, and so that's what happens. And we get to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, they've decided to beg. That's what gleaning is. Gleaning is begging. So uh, Ruth is gleaning in a field. Uh, gleaning literally is akin to people asking for change on the subway right now. It's the same deal. You just happen to be in a field, and whatever somebody drops, you just went and you picked up. But as Watson told us last week, Watson's our good friend who's planting a church in Philly, and what he told us last week is that she is noticed by this guy named Boaz. Okay, and what Watson told us, he said, you know, we have these dark stories, these dark times, these middle of the night times. And he says, you know, we're not alone. We are known by God. We are known. We are noticed by God. Which leads us to chapter 3, because we have this guy, Boaz, who notices Ruth. And this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Boaz means strength. So that's the Hebrew translation. They have some really cool names, you know, like... Pleasant is Naomi and, you know, strength, Boaz. It's, that's really cool. Um, if I ever have a son, I'll name him Boaz. I won't. But anyway, um, uh, so, so Naomi says this strength, this strength has noticed you. And so this is what she says uh, to Ruth. She says this. She says, hey, uh, now Boaz, with, with whose women you worked, is a relative of ours. And tonight he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So she says, hey, we have this strength, and this strength happens to be a, a, a guardian redeemer or, or an, a relative of ours. And I'm going to get into that a ton next week. But this week, all I'll say is that means that there is a chance that, that Ruth and Naomi can change from their labels of, of voiceless and helpless to, to uh, something new, to having security, economic security, social security, and safety. Okay, So that's, that's basically what she's saying. She says, hey, we have a shot here to change our lot in life. Okay, We have a chance. We're going to take it. So she comes up with this plan. Now, I told us that we cannot read this book. I said, you cannot read this book uh, with, with Western eyes. Right? I said that. I said, you have to read it the way that, that uh, Jewish people would have read it a couple thousand years ago. All right? So that's what we're going to do. Because what I'm about to tell you is, this is probably like the most graphic piece of scripture in all of the Bible. Like, legitimately. Okay? Um, it's like 50 shades of gray in here. That's, that's what's going on right now. And, like, like, and, you know, there's controversy surrounding it, but this is what's happening. So if you were a, a, a Jewish person reading this a couple thousand years ago, here's what you would know. You would know that winnowing on the threshing floor is nothing like it sounds, okay? The threshing floor was actually a place where you went after work, and there was a ton of 
wine and you know, beer and everything else. And there was all this meat. And in some cases there were prostitutes everywhere. And after work you would go there and you would eat and drink yourself silly. And if there were women around, you would sleep with women. That's what you would do on the threshing floor. That was what the the threshing floor was. Um, Scholars will be like, um, they try to make it sound academic. They're like, it's a fertility ritual. And I'm like, in 2,000 years, they're going to talk about us going out on Saturday nights as a fertility ritual. That's, like, it's, this, it's like the same thing. It's like, this is what it is. And so this is what you would know if you were reading this. You would know that this is how God's working. God's working on the threshing floor. All right. Um, so now Naomi, um, in verse 7, it says, When Boaz has finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. All right, if you were a Jewish person reading this, you would know that if you were in good spirits, it meant you were in really bad shape. You were pretty banged up. It also meant that you're not going to go lie down because that looks like a comfortable spot. It means that you can't walk anymore, and you're going to pass out. Okay, that's what's happening. Do we see like how God is working in a really interesting situation? And so Ruth approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turns, and there's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. All right, if you are a reader, a couple thousand years ago, uncovering feet does not mean you're uncovering feet, okay? That does not mean that. It means that you are having sex. That's what it means, all right? So it gets a little graphic, right? So basically what Ruth does is she comes in to a passed out person, and she has intercourse with him. That's what's happening right here. This is the situation in with, in with which God is working, all right? It's, it's like, I'm, I'm getting embarrassed up here. I don't even know why. Like, I'm getting embarrassed. So she's, she's having sex with him. And I don't know, like, what do you guys think of that? It's, I'm, like, embarrassed to talk about it. Um, yeah, some of you are, like, some of you are, like, shaking your heads like this. There's a few that are like this. You that are like that right now. It's all right. So no wonder. I mean, like, so what's the next thing that Boaz says? Ruth says all that. No wonder. Boaz is like, the Lord bless you. That's what he says. The Lord bless you indeed, Boaz. That's why this is the climax. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm finished. I'm finished. That was awful. Um... And the sad part is I wrote that in my notes. Um, but, here, but here's, okay, so that's all happening, okay? If you are reading this uh, as a Jewish person, you know, a few thousand years ago, you know all this. But here's the, the, the part that we need to know because it's important. What Ruth is saying is when she says, spread the corner of your garment over me, she's not saying, hey, I'm cold. You know, put your blanket on me. She's saying, hey, will you marry me? That's what she's saying. That's the Jewish way. Uh, that was a Jewish uh, tradition. It, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. If you spread your garment over somebody, you, you are pledging to marry them. Okay, that's what you're doing. And so again, she's changing her lot, right? She's saying, I'm no longer going to be voiceless and helpless. I'm asking you to marry me. Remember, marriage wasn't for love. It was a transaction. So she's saying, I'm asking for, for economic security. I'm asking for social security. I'm asking for safety. That's what she's saying when she asks for this garment to be spread over her. It's incredibly risky. Is it really risky? She has no stature, right? So she's there in a place where she's not supposed to be. Nine times out of ten, 
If a woman were to do this, a person in Boaz's place who has land, who has property, who has employees and all the rest can easily say and has every right to say and it's culturally acceptable to say, hey, this woman, she needs to be killed. Okay? That's what needs to happen. Somebody come over here and kill her and then do what you want with her anyway. She's, I don't know why she's here. That would have been appropriate. So it's incredibly risky for, for Ruth to do this. It's incredibly risky for Boaz to even be in this position. Like I said, land, property, and everything else. Now, if he says yes, if he says yes, I'll cover you up with my garment, I'll marry you. Now he's got to think about splitting up employees. He's got to think about splitting up property. He's got to think about, uh, you know, what if we have kids? I'm giving some of my riches away to my kids. He stands to lose a lot. This is just as risky for him too. And yet, he says this, hey, you haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now don't be afraid, I will do for you all you ask. And all the people of my town, they know you're a woman of noble character. And although it's true I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in morning, if he wants to do his duty, great, let him redeem you. But if not, surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now lie here until morning. Basically, he says there's this giant risk that you are taking, and now I'm going to return. I'm also going to take a giant risk. If this other person who's related to you doesn't help you out, I'm the guy that's going to help you out. I'm the guy that's going to do it. I think you need to understand what that sounds like to Ruth. All right, here's Ruth. You know, Boaz has power beyond power at this point, and you have Ruth, you know, lying at his feet, pun intended. And um, and, and and he says. To Ruth, it sounds like this. It sounds like, hey, your risk paid off. I'm not going to kill you. That's what it sounds like to her. Your risk paid off. I, I, I won't do that. This is huge. This is giant. Like, this is, this is a life or death situation. And, and so, you know, the question that I have or the question that we have is, what, what do we do with this? What becomes of this? How do we handle this? Um, and so we got to first talk about Scripture. Like, you know, there are some people who say, you know, read every word of Scripture and read it literally, and this is what it's supposed to mean. Well, that's troublesome, right? Because if we're reading everything literally in the way we're supposed to read it, then it sounds like we need to sleep with people to get ahead, you know? It makes it sound like, uh, you know, hey, maybe a big risk is having that one-night stand and hoping that it all works out. Or the big risk is, oh, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to sleep with this person, and God's going to bless it. You know, like, I don't think that's what we have happening here. I don't think that's what we're, 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 uh, we're God's trying to tell us or the Spirit's trying to tell us through this. So what is the Spirit trying to tell us? Um, when I read this, I thought of a, a, a sermon that I read a long time ago. It's by a guy named C.S. Lewis. You guys ever hear of C.S. Lewis? It's a pretty popular sermon, but I want to read the passage that uh, always sticks out to me. Um, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. The Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I think about these middle-of-the-night stories, the ones that we have. Okay, think about your middle-of-the-night story. What is it? It's usually big. Family situation. Your family's coming unraveled, or somebody's really sick in your family. Or, or maybe it's a body situation for you where your body is sick or, or you have issues with your body and, and you obsess and you have anxiety and you take control. Or, or maybe it's a situation with jobs. My guess is that everybody in this room at some point or another has had like a job crisis where you have a big crisis and a big need job-wise. 
Or um, lately during Lent, I've, I've struggled with this city. I've struggled being like, you know, if I just had that apartment or if I just had this much money or if I just had this body or if I just had this situation, my life in New York would be so much easier. And, and there's these big crises, right? And there's these big needs. And yet I ask God to do really small things in my life. I ask God to do really little things. There's a, a pastor that I like named Nadia Boltz-Weber, and she told a story last week, and she said she was driving her car, and she said, you know, I'm out pastoring, and I'm trying to help this person, and I'm going to do that for that person, and I'm out doing all that. And she said, I had a stomach virus, and so as I'm driving, I passed out, and I ran over a bunch of mailboxes and hit a snowbank. And she said she came too, and the paramedics were there, and the paramedics were like, uh, what are you doing? You are so incredibly dehydrated. What are you doing? And she was like, I was out there trying to help everybody in my church. I was trying to help everybody. And the paramedic goes, well, you could have helped and you should have helped by just sitting there in bed. And what she said is she said that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, the me-based solution. She says that when there are big crises and when there are big needs, we create me-based solutions. We create solutions based on, on, on what our limited scope looks like, on what we think we can handle, without ever for a second thinking that there might be a God doing really big things beyond what we can see. That's what this me-based solution looks like. In 2011, Juby and I, our church folded, this church that we were going to, we were a part of, it folded. And we didn't know what we were going to do, and we were talking, and we said, well, what role does God play in all this? And I said, you know, I don't think God can do anything that I'm not already doing. That's what I said. I don't think God can do anything I'm already doing, because we have this big crisis, and we have this huge need, whatever it might be, in our middle-of-the-night story, and yet we make these really small asks of God. And what that is akin to is that it's akin to Ruth saying, you know what, I got noticed, and I'm just going to keep begging in the fields. Because at least I'm getting grain, and at least I have something to eat. And this is okay. I'm okay with where I am right now. I'm just going to keep begging in the fields. That's what this is akin to. I think there's a flip side. I think where there are people that come into our lives, and these people have big crises, and people have big needs, and God is saying, hey, I'm going to use you to work for those people. And we say, great, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work for those people as long as it makes social sense for me. Does this make social sense for me? And great, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it as, as long as I get something out of it. Is there an incentive in it for me? Is there something I'm going to get? Or I'm going to do it as long as I don't feel like I'm going to be being taken advantage of. I'll do it as long as that happens. And once again, we have somebody coming to us with big crisis and big need, and, and, and we're saying, God, I see you working through me, but it's going to, it's going to have to happen in really small ways because my life is jam-packed. Sorry. And if we do that, it's akin to Boaz saying, you know what, I'm not taking the big risks. It's akin to Boaz saying, hey, I see what you're doing, and I see you want me to cover you with the garment, but listen, I have so much property, so, much, so many employees, and so much to give that there's really nothing I can do to help you. You're going to be stuck in this cycle forever. I'm sorry. I wish I could do more. In the middle of the night, we have big crises, and we have big needs, and then we have this really small God. We have these situations that we can't control. And so what we do is we create our me-based solutions. And when we create our me-based solutions, we say, you know what, maybe I am going to jump into that relationship, even though I know it's doomed from the start, but I'm really lonely right now. 
I can see that. That works. Oh, maybe I, I, I'll just jump into this job because my identity is all in my job and I don't have an identity outside and so that's what I'm going to do. Or, or I'm just going to spend time freaking out on this situation and holding it right here in the palm of my hand because I can't have the courage to believe for a second that there might be a God doing anything else. These are our me-based solutions. And yet we have a God who says, I'm God, I'm doing my best work in the middle of the night. I'm doing my best work in the middle of the night. I did my best work in the middle of the night with Jacob when he wrestled an angel, and Jacob comes out of that, and then I named him Israel, and I started a nation through him. And I did my best work in this story of Ruth and Boaz where there's this illicit affair that goes down in the most illicit of places and I have a man who takes a giant risk and redeems a woman who is voiceless and helpless and gives her a voice again. I did that. I worked in that middle of the night situation. And I worked in one of the most incredible middle of the night situations where there is me incarnate, Jesus, and I get arrested and I die and I am resurrected again. And I'm resurrected again so that our middle of the night stories so that in our middle of the night stories we know that there are big crises and big needs and there is a really big redeemer that's the truth and that's what this is about it's about moving beyond our me-based solutions and knowing that there is a really big redeemer working in ways that we cannot imagine so what do we do it's hard. I mean, we have to have the courage to actually believe it first, the strength to actually believe it first. But maybe we start taking the big risks. And sometimes the big risks are to lay in bed instead of driving into a snowbank. And sometimes the big risk is to go ahead and and have the conversation that you are scared to death of having. And maybe sometimes the big risk is saying out loud, I am letting this thing go, and God, it's on you now. Guess what? God's big enough. God can handle it. Maybe, maybe the big risk is, oh my gosh, we just had a family and I need to leave New York right away. Maybe we stay for a little while longer knowing that God might work something out. Maybe the big risk is that we don't identify with our jobs and our whole livelihood is not based on whether or not we're doing good work, but maybe there's something, a bigger passion or something that God has for us instead of our small, me-based, limited solution. What's your big risk? What's the big risk you're going to take? What's the thing that keeps you up in the middle of the night, your middle of the night story, where you have a big need, will you believe that there is a really big redeemer? And it's our God doing God's best work in the middle of the night. This is what Nadia Boltzweber said to her community, her congregation, after she drove into a snowbank. She said this. She says, every time our me-based solution to a me-based problem fades away, I know that God stands forever. And God is in the snowbanks, and God is in our detox, and God is in our field, and God is in our nights. And remember that when we bottom out and when we fail, we have a God who resurrected the dead. And that where two or more of us screw-ups show up, Jesus is with us. The risen Lord of life is standing with us in our limited me-based solution. And it's a Jesus who brings peace that passes our understanding and our solutions and our attempts to trust anything else. And there are no more me-based solutions. There is only our Jesus Christ doing more things crucified and now alive. God is doing God's best work in the middle of the night, writing our stories of light and redemption, and resurrection. What risks will we take? Pray with me.
uh, God, I, I think the, the, the energy, the energy that it takes to even believe that you are bigger than our me-based solutions, it feels overwhelming. And so what I'm going to pray today is I pray that you give us the energy to believe that, to believe that, that you are at work, that you know, Christ crucified and resurrected is at work in my life and in our lives and in the stuff that we can't let go of and in our big needs. God, give us reason to worship Give us reason to say, like, okay, we took the big risk, we did the big thing, and, and I can see God's work in it and God's hand in it. Oh, God, give us the strength and the energy and courage to move in that direction. We pray this in your name. Amen.